Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For more information or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please email us at theturningtidespodcast at gmail.com. Warning, this episode contains depictions of war, death, injury, enslavement, and violence, and discusses mature themes. Hello, everyone. I'm Joseph Pascone. Welcome to Turning Tides. This episode is the second in a five-part series on the Italian independence movement, or to which it is commonly referred, the Risorgimento. Today I will be covering the period between 1815 to 1848, everything from the Congress of Vienna and ensuing white terror, all the way up to the five days of Milan, which changed Italian history forever. Today, we'll also be delving more deeply into the lives of the philosophers and theorists that breathed the initial life into the fire of Italian nationalism and unification. This fire would engulf all of Italy during this period and for the subsequent years. The founding fathers of the Italian nation will also be introduced into the conversation. Unlike George Washington, however, these founding fathers were rarely successful, and many of them would become martyrs to the cause of Italy. So without further ado, this is Turning Tides, Italian Footsteps, The Lessons They Never Learned. Italy's burgeoning consciousness, 1815 to 1848. The Congress of Vienna was officially signed on June 9, 1815. It was the single most extraordinary piece of diplomacy for its time, and it is still a benchmark for diplomacy today. Never in European history had the great powers sat down to talk until the threat of liberal democracy and Bonapartism was knocking at their door. The Congress of Vienna allowed all major European nations to agree on a return to the previously established order. It also ignited a terror that caused hundreds of Democrats and Republicans to be beaten to death in the streets of cities like Milan and Paris by reactionaries. The signing of the Congress of Vienna was thanks largely to the work of one man, Clemens von Metternich. In many ways, Metternich was a product of his time. He was born into a middling noble family in Koblenz. He spent his formative years learning French, and he was one of the most staunchly conservative thinkers of his time. Metternich believed principally in the traditional order of things, and in the stability that he believed the monarchy alone could provide. He believed that a monarch who had unhindered power, a strong church, and a powerful state apparatus could alone prevent the descent into chaos which many believed would occur if democracy were to take root in Europe. It's the opinion of many historians that if Metternich were even slightly more moderate, the violence that exploded in 1848 would not have been as intense or as far-reaching. Thanks to Metternich, along with conservative leaders worldwide, the year 1848 was one of the most uproarious in recent history. Previously, there had never been such a spontaneous and violent wave of protests and rebellions in Europe, and it wouldn't occur again on such a large scale until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989. For many conservative leaders, the work done in the Congress of Vienna 
would eventually lead to the unraveling of their regime, only two generations after the supposed return to normalcy. In truth, however, the year 1848 was a culmination of decades of violence and turbulence. This violence occurred mainly within the geographic expression of Italy, but it also spread throughout France, the Lowlands, and Greece. Since the defeat of Napoleon, Italy had changed a lot, and yet in many ways it hadn't changed at all. In 1815, following the signing of the Congress of Vienna, Italy was returned to a hodgepodge of various political states. The most politically powerful of these was the Kingdom of Sardinia Piedmont, which was under the control of the absolute monarch Victor Emmanuel I. His realm was expanded in the treaty to include Genoa. This was the only country in Italy that could claim its leadership was truly Italian. The House of Savoy was an institution in Italy for nearly a thousand years. All the other countries of the peninsula were controlled by foreign kings and dukes. The Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which was under the command of the Bourbon King Ferdinand I, was the second most powerful, as well as the largest geographically. King Ferdinand I ruled with a despotic fist and taught his children to do the same. The Papal States were ruled by the Pope, Pius VIII, along with thousands of foreign French and Austrian troops, who kept the Pope's subjects in line. The next largest state, and the most liberal, was the Grand Dukedom of Tuscany, ruled by the Austrian royal Ferdinand III. The rest of the smaller states and dukedoms were run by lesser members of the Austrian royal family. Venice and its surrounding countryside, Veneto, and Milan, with its surrounding countryside, Lombardy, belonged directly to the Austrian Habsburg Empire. These were considered gems in the crown of Austria, as both were incredibly fertile and economically prosperous. For example, the regions of Lombardy and Veneto made up only one-sixth of the Habsburg Empire's population, but these regions provided a full third of all the tax revenue for the empire. Austria's occupation of these regions afforded them complete control of the Italian peninsula, and it provided the military bases which could relieve the central Italian dukes if necessary. Austria even with its imperial rule, censorship, and reactionary tactics, was still one of the most moderate nations of the time. They practiced a fair tax system and let Italians form their own local governments and councils. Milan and Venice had advanced infrastructure, industry, and medical practices, as well as the highest literacy rate of the entire peninsula. However, Austria's repression and their violent means to an end often castigated them as the villain. In any Italian uprising, and especially in the rebellions I will talk about today, the Austrian professional army was always a decisive factor. The Austrian army had long prided itself as one of the best, if not the best, in all of Europe. It could call on a standing peacetime army of over 70,000 men in Veneto, Lombardy alone. Nearly 40% of the state's budget went to funding and keeping intact the most multi-ethnic, armed forces the world had seen to that point. Not to be outdone, the rulers of Italy helped in the rooting out of liberal democracy. King Victor Emmanuel I reinstated noble and clerical land privileges, and likewise abolished the civil codes of Napoleon. In the Papal States, 
Pope Pius VIII reinitiated the Inquisition, as well as the conservative order of Jesuit priests. He also reinstituted the ghettos created for Jewish people and Protestants, locking their doors shut every night. Meanwhile, in the Two Sicilies, Ferdinand rescinded the Sicilian Constitution of 1812 and blocked free trade, which devastated the island of Sicily's agriculturally-based economy. Only in the Grand Duchy of Tuscany could you see anything close to a modern liberal state. However, only about 5% of the Tuscan population had the ability to vote. This was happening all while hundreds of alleged Republicans, Jacobins, and Patriots were killed in streets across Europe in the White Terror of 1815. These were just some of the factors that often forced early Italian patriots into the new political underground and especially secret societies. The Carbonari and the Freemasons were early melting pots for Italian patriots. The membership of these societies almost always included Napoleonic veterans, usually former officers, as well as disgruntled southern Italians. A well-known member of the Carbonari was Felipe Buenarote, a writer and political essayist whose work contributed heavily to Marxian writings. He was principally a proto-utopian socialist and spent his days in France trying to bring back the French Republic. He wrote in 1828, quote, The fact is that equality is unrecognized and that there exists everywhere, even in countries that are called free, an immense class of men of whom liberty is only a fiction, and with the aid of which oppressors contrive for the moment to deceive and appease the weak and ignorant. Unquote. These ideas, shared by a new generation of would-be Italian patriots and martyrs, sent a collective chill down the spine of Europe's leaders. The Congress of Vienna would be the first of many steps to crush Jacobinism. Clearly, more impediments to free thought and movement were needed. Austria would support Italy's absolute rulers. The other European countries, having plenty of their own problems, cared little about the appeals of the relatively few Italians clamoring for self-rule. On July 1, 1820, thanks to unrest and violence in Spain, the first sparks of revolt manifested in Naples, where Guglielmo Pepe led an uprising composed of other Carbonaris and former Napoleonic officers. They succeeded in demanding a liberal constitution from King Ferdinand. In response, a revolt exploded in Sicily, aimed at gaining the island's independence. Another revolt of a similar style erupted in March of 1821, this time in Piedmont. It caused King Victor Emmanuel I to abdicate in favor of his authoritarian, yet reluctant, brother, Charles Felix. This was not before the regent, Charles Albert, declared for a constitution in support of the revolution. This made Charles Felix furious. He believed that the abdication of Victor Emmanuel was made under the threat of violence and was therefore invalid. He called on the international community to step in and put an end to the threats against the Savoyard crown and family. And so, only five years after the crushing of Napoleon, two of the most powerful countries in Italy were on their way toward at best a constitutional monarchy and at worst a complete 
liberal democracy, or at least that's how Europe's leaders saw it. The so-called quote-unquote holy alliance of Russia, Prussia, and Austria were determined to put an end to this nascent rebellion. The Austrians, taking the lead, quickly crushed the rebels in Naples while dispatching the uprising in Piedmont, while in Sicily, the rebels were eventually suppressed by Bourbon troops. To make matters worse, the Pope condemned and excommunicated every member of the Carbonari, and many of its leaders were executed, Pepe being exiled. To quote Alexander Dumas, Every new faith, religious or political, which is to have apostles and zealous disciples, first requires martyrs. Unquote. And martyrs there were. In Piedmont alone, 178 people were tried by the military, of which some 73 were executed, while the rest were thrown into prison or forced to work in the galleys. Although it was crushed, this uprising showed all of Europe that Italy would not take authoritarianism and colonization lying down. These revolts also helped show a young man named Giuseppe Mazzini that Italians had an entire world to gain, not just for themselves, but for all of Europe and for all peoples, the world of liberty. Born on June 22, 1805, in Genoa, Giuseppe Mazzini was one of the greatest rabble-rousers in history. He was infinitely more successful in his lifetime than Marx or Bakunin. He was born to a Jacobin university professor and a devout Catholic mother. Excelling at school, he entered the University of Genoa at 14 and graduated in 1826. Always interested in politics and Italian liberation, Mazzini was a voracious writer and a reader of Rousseau and Byron. A year after graduating, he wrote his first essay on Italian patriotism, and later that same year, he was inducted into the ranks of the Carbonari. This began Mazzini's lifelong career as an agitator. Unfortunately, monetary and legal troubles would soon follow. In fact, most of his housing and basic needs were covered exclusively by his parents for nearly his entire life. His politics were as complicated as the man himself. He was a devout Catholic, but also an intense progressive. He decried nationalism, but considered himself an ardent patriot. He also was one of the main arbiters of Italian unification, and using his gravitas, he convinced another person to join him who would soon follow his example. His name was Giuseppe Garibaldi, and in the decades to follow, he and Mazzini would become the eternal boogeyman of Europe's authoritarian leaders. Born in July 1807, Giuseppe Garibaldi was a lifelong freedom fighter. He hailed from the city of Nice, which then belonged to the French Empire under Napoleon. His father was a sailor. This attributed to Garibaldi's love of the sea and his immense capabilities as a seaman and swimmer. His mother was often beside herself with worry, as news of his adventures reached home, often following a death sentence or a wanted poster. This was thanks to the inherent rebel inside Garibaldi. He is known to have visited every continent on Earth, save Antarctica. 
His time on the planet was spent trying to improve the lives of the people around him, and he fought for the principles he professed. Time only made him more radical. As he started his career as a privateer, then a monarchist, and ended it as a revolutionary member of the extreme left political party. But that is in the story to come. For now, Garibaldi had received his first commission on a ship bound for the present-day Ukrainian port of Odessa. It was during these initial sea voyages that Garibaldi first became acquainted with radical politics and Italian liberation from sailors he worked alongside. Garibaldi relates this meeting well in his autobiography. Quote, The man who makes himself a cosmopolite and offers his sword and his blood to every people struggling against tyranny is more than a soldier. He is a hero. Unquote. So Garibaldi set out to become a hero, not just for Italians, but for the enslaved peoples of Brazil, France, America, and Uruguay. Geopolitical relationships were tense at the time as well. A new revolution in France in July of 1830 toppled the ultra-conservative regime of Charles X and brought Louis-Philippe to the throne, making France a constitutional monarchy. This sparked revolts on various scales in support of constitutionalism throughout Europe, and in Italy in particular. After the July Revolution in France, Metternich proclaimed that his life's work was a failure. So it was that as 1830 ticked over into 1831, revolts spread in Parma, Modena, and especially throughout the Papal States. The leader of the revolt in Modena was a local merchant named Ciro Menotti. Duke Francis IV of Modena supported these revolts at first, hoping to be rewarded with the title of king of a central Italian state. But after realizing the movement was beyond his control, he fled Modena for Austria, where he called for assistance from the empire. This rebellion rapidly expanded, and within a month, the rebels could claim nearly all the papal states and the city of Modena. But the leaders of the various Carbonari revolts refused to support one another, and the situation quickly devolved into infighting among the Republicans. The Austrians had now arrived to save the day, and quickly dismantled the rebellion and hung the 42-year-old Minotti. These revolts achieved very little. In fact, they intensified Austrian reaction, and led them to use a more direct hand in controlling their Italian dukes. It did, however, show the weakness of the Carbonari, who were unable to organize and direct a revolution. It also showed the weak political will of the Papal States and the other central Italian duchies. They showed themselves to be little more than Austrian puppets, heavily reliant on their troops to maintain order. In Piedmont, Charles Felix died. The crown passed to his kin and former regent, Charles Albert. Mazzini petitioned this new king for a liberal constitution and asked him to take up the mantle of Italian unification. Upon realizing that the king would not acquiesce to his demands, Mazzini took matters into his own hands and created the Young Italy movement. Young Italy was a left-wing political movement whose slogan was Union, Strength, and Liberty. Young Italy was different from Carbonarism and other secret societies. 
Mazzini did not want to focus on scheming and secrecy, but rather propaganda and agitation. He wanted the cause of Italian liberty to be known to all, and he wanted Italy to be a single unified country. It's easy to see why Mazzini's personal slogan was Pensiero ed Azioni, or Thought and Action. Mazzini was a deeply religious man as well, believing in God's love for all humanity and the Christian mission to quote-unquote civilize. The book, The Risorgimento and the Unification of Italy, states it well, quote, Against the moderates, he was a republican, not monarchical. Unitarian, not federalist. Revolutionary, not constitutionalist. Against the radicals, he was not a socialist, though he supported industrial cooperation. He regarded the creation of a democratic, republican, and united Italy as the overriding aim, but was not prepared to compromise on the first two aspects, democracy and republic. For the sake of the third. Unquote. With Mazzini at the helm of this new revolutionary movement, its membership exploded. By 1833, it had swelled to some 60,000 party members. So far reaching were young Italy's ideals that similar organizations sprang up all over the world. There was a young Germany, a young Uruguay, and a young Poland while in Austria, membership in such a party was punishable by death. This party idea would eventually find its way to the Ottoman Empire, where the Young Turks would come to seize power on similar principles. Meanwhile, the Italian peninsula of the 1830s had gone from regressive to downright reactionary. In the Two Sicilies, Ferdinand II inherited the throne from his short-reigning father, Francis I., in the beginning, his reign was seen as rather liberal. He built the first railroad in Italian history, but it was between Naples and his own royal palace. He cut taxes and expenditures, and even had telegraphic connections placed from Naples to Palermo. Within Sicily's hilled interior, the discovery of sulfur provided a boon for the island's residents, and places like La Carafride became booming mining towns. Under the surface, however, Ferdinand II had a bitter distaste for liberalism and democracy. In a letter to his uncle, Louis-Philippe, the King of France, he states, quote, Liberty is fatal to the House of Bourbon, and I, for one, have determined to avoid at all cost the fates of Louis XVI and Charles X. My people obey force and submission, but woe if they were to be moved by those dreams, which are so beautiful in the philosopher's writings, but are in fact impossible in practice. With God's help, I shall give my people the prosperity and the honest administration to which they are entitled, but I shall be king alone and always. My people have no need to think." Unquote. This vindictive thread was displayed most openly in 1837, when he violently suppressed an uprising in Sicily, claiming the lives of approximately 40,000 people. While in the Papal States, the new Supreme Legate was Pope Gregory XVI, a deeply conservative and superstitious man. He believed it was his duty to sinners to reveal their folly to them in going against their church or lawful monarch. 
He was unexpectedly elected in early February of 1831, and is the most recent pope to not hold the title of bishop before being elevated to the papacy. He was most known for his opposition to the slave trade, which he recorded in a papal decree called In Supremo Epostolates. Alongside this decree, he also made railroads illegal in the papal states, referring to them as Camis de Enfer, or the road to hell. He was, likewise, against the use of gas lighting, arguing that allowing such modern technology into the papal states would increase bourgeoisie power and, in turn, their demands for liberal constitutionalism. Pope Gregory XVI could be described as draconian in his governing. Throughout his term as pontiff, he crushed several central Italian revolts with extreme prejudice, and he spent most of the papal state's budget on defensive works and employing several theologians and scholars in his court full-time. 1833 saw the first major setback for the Young Italy Party. A plot to overthrow Charles Albert was discovered, and many conspirators were killed or thrown in prison. Another uprising was planned by Mazzini and scheduled for late October 1833. It did not commence until January of 1834, thanks to inept organization by the thousand insurgent Italians. The insurgents, who were making their way from camps located outside of Geneva, Switzerland, were to invade Piedmont and capture the town of St. Julian, where they would attempt to rouse the populace into revolt. However, the Swiss government, wishing to avoid a diplomatic incident, arrested half of the invading force as they were in transit. The other column passed through several Piedmont villages. The tricolor unfurled for all the villagers to see, and the insurgents, expecting to be met with cheers and recruits, were instead met with indifference if not outright disdain. The dirt roads and below freezing temperature caused many of the men to become disheartened and fatigued. Garibaldi deemed Mazzini, quote, half dead with fever, unquote. The general, Romarino, was rather incompetent by all accounts. Garibaldi relates another story of Mazzini during this campaign, where after weeks of useless marching, the feverish and slender Mazzini lost his temper with General Romarino. He said, quote, It is not by this road that we can hope to meet the enemy. We ought to go where we can be put to the test. If victory is impossible, let us at least prove that, like Italians, we know how to die. Unquote. The general is said to have replied, quote, I should consider it a crime to needlessly expose the flower of the Italian youth. Unquote. To this, Mazzini coolly retorted, quote, There is no religion without its martyrs. Let us found ours, even if it be by our blood. Unquote. At this, the sound of musketry was supposedly heard in the distance, and as Mazzini reached for his rifle to face the enemy, he collapsed, senseless, only to awaken Switzerland. Romarino, terrified and faltering, had called a retreat. The uprising had failed spectacularly. With this failed uprising, reprisals were handed down from Piedmont authorities. In absentia, both Mazzini and Garibaldi were tried and found guilty of treason. They were dead men if the authorities ever caught up with them. 
Mazzini departed at once for Paris, and after being detained by French authorities, he finally found his way to Britain. There he had many acquaintances who would push for the Italian cause. Garibaldi escaped first to Marseilles, then across the world to Uruguay, where there was a small but vibrant immigrant Italian community. He then traveled to the newly formed Republic of the Rio Grande, which is located in present-day southern Brazil, to join the fledgling republic in their fight for independence against empirical rule. This conflict is famously called the Ragamuffin War, in honor of the uniform worn by the Republican fighters. Here, Garibaldi would meet his wife and the mother of four of his children, Anita Garibaldi. Meanwhile, young Italy was undeniably reeling. Their leader, Mazzini, was outcast from his own country, and many members had already been arrested or executed. Mazzini still attempted to ferment unrest throughout the peninsula, from abroad, especially in southern Italy and the Austrian-dominated regions of Lombardy and Veneto, though he would not be successful in any respect for years to come. Back in Austrian North Italy, all was going smoothly. The secret police of Austria, the Geheimstaatspolizei, along with a massive police force, monitored mail for subversive thought and left-wing or nationalist agitations. This constant surveillance the lack of social mobility, and xenophobia played a huge role in the agitation of the populations of Milan and Venice, with many Italian citizens referring to garrisoned Austrian troops as Croats. These racist sentiments would often boil to the surface during protests and uprisings. To compound on all of this, the economic policy of the Habsburg Empire was unsustainable in North Italy. Austrian historian R. Pritcher states it well in his book Economic Policy and Development in Austrian Lombardy. Quote, Austria had a protectionist system aimed at autarky, which made incentives to industrial production a priority. Lombardy's purely mercantile outlook, on the other hand, was based around the production of a few highly specialized goods, most notably silk for export. Conflict between economic interests in Lombardy was the inevitable result. Unquote. Many upper middle class people's trade and livelihoods were severely affected by the Austrians' economic policies, and the discontentment would only grow as more and more rage bubbled to the surface. To the shock of the Austrian Empire and Metternich, Francis II suddenly died after having an intense fever on March 2, 1835. He had served as emperor since 1792. His replacement was to be Ferdinand I of Austria, who was mentally and physically handicapped and suffered from severe epilepsy. He is famously known for exclaiming, quote, I am the emperor and I want dumplings, unquote, during an outburst at court. He is also said to have had as many as 20 seizures a day. He was also the last king of Bohemia, as he decided to be crowned in Prague and champion Czech rights. He was also rather quick-witted, and it's said he kept a personal journal. As emperor, he ultimately had very little power. The main organs of the state were directed by a regency council served by Archduke Louise, the Count of Colorat, and Metternich. During this time, Austria's focus was keeping Hungary in check, playing on intra-imperial 
prejudices, and pinning each nationality within the empire against each other in order to gain control. This was a massive game of geopolitics, with the lives of tens of millions of people on the game board. This system could only implode, and it was just a matter of when, how badly, and if the Austrian army could douse the flames before they engulfed the nation in an inferno. In recent years, the Austrian economy had been sputtering. They had very little money in their coffers for basic social programs. This forced them into bank loans with inflated interest, which would worsen their financial deficit still further. Well, back in Piedmont, Charles Albert ruled with a personal touch. He directed the mechanisms and bureaucracy of the state at his desk from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. He did this every day, uninterrupted, eating and resting very little. Charles Albert was a deeply religious man. He often wore a hair shirt and slept alone on an iron bed. This did nothing for his health, as he was constantly ill and suffering from liver disease for most of his life. He often found himself in crisis with his faith, frequently wondering what it was that God wanted for him. He felt sure that he was ordained in his position because of God, but he had no idea what to do in his position as king. Should he support the common people and their bourgeois patrons, or should he follow his cousin Felix's example and become a heavy-handed absolutist ruler? Following the July Revolution in France, its reverberations through Italy, and the Mazzinian-inspired uprisings afterward, Charles Albert was clearly terrified of the threat to his throne. So, he allied with Austria in a treaty ratified in 1836, entrusting the defense of the kingdom of Piedmont to Austria. He is known to even have written to the Austrian foreign minister, quote, the most beautiful day of my life will be the day on which there is a war with France and I have a good fortune to serve in the Austrian army. Unquote. Economically, Charles Albert could be considered a genuine, liberal, common-sense policymaker. He lowered the tax on grain in 1834 and in 1835 made it legal to export raw silk from Lombardy. He then lowered tariffs on raw materials such as coal and textiles. And perhaps most importantly, in 1838, he reformed the armed forces and eliminated the last vestiges of feudalism on the island of Sardinia. At the turn of the next decade, Charles Albert would find tensions simmering with his Austrian allies over trade and natural resources. An old standing treaty between Austria and Piedmont over salt deliveries to Switzerland was breached by Charles Albert. In response, the Austrians placed a 100% tax on wine from Piedmont entering Veneto Lombardy. To counter, Piedmont forbade the export of silk to Austrian Lombardy altogether. However, these minor disputes affected relations between the two countries very little. But as Charles' son, Prince Victor Emmanuel II, was preparing for his marriage to the Austrian princess Adelaide, a new force was rising throughout Italy. The Neogulfs, or the Moderates, likewise wanted Italian liberty from Austria, but they would not do it at the cost of revolutionary bloodshed, nor violence against the church and private property. 
These men wanted to work with the royals and the church to reform the system internally. Their adherents and proponents would help inflame the country in revolution in just a few short years, with Charles Albert, the on-again, off-again reformer, joining on the side of the revolutionaries. The Neogolf movement was one of the single most important movements during the Risorgimento, and its influence affected politics, the economy, and society overall. In truth, there was always a moderating force in Italy, but the moderate movement of the early 1840s was a truly national Italian movement. It consisted of businessmen, lawyers, and doctors, who were part of a new upper-middle class, motivated by profit and cosmopolitanism, in lieu of ancient privileges and provincialism. They used the power of modern technology and capitalism to spread their ideas about the economy and the state. Their accumulation of wealth made them serious players in areas like journalism, industry, and social banqueting. The first man who was considered part of this new liberal Italian class was Silvio Pellico. He was a journalist in Milan prior to the 1820s. It was there where he became a member of the Carbonari. He was arrested by the Austrians for his association with the revolutionary movement and spent the next 10 years in the Spielberg fortress of Moravia, where he suffered untold deprivations. During his imprisonment, he became a devout Catholic, and following his release, he dedicated his life to reforming prisons across Europe. In 1832, he published his seminal work, Mi Prigioni, or My Prisons. It was a heart-wrenching story of isolation, pain, and eventual forgiveness. The book made a point not to mention politics and instead spoke of Christian forgiveness and the goodness inside all people. In the following excerpt, Silvio is attempting to send a message to a dear friend who is being held in the same prison, and the messenger, an old man, is discovered with it. Quote, He had the bad luck of being spied on, searched, caught, and if I am not mistaken, beaten. I heard loud screams that sounded like the old man, and I never saw him again. In vain, I asked the keepers and the guards. They would shake their heads and say, You have paid dearly for him. Unquote. Even though Pellico made a point to praise his captors, his bestseller further inflamed public opinion surrounding Austria's vindictive and brutal system. The next wave of liberal thinkers would not come until the early 1840s, with the main contributor being Vincenzo Gioberti. Gioberti was a classical liberal who was the first to put forward a political program of substance for Italy's many religious moderates. Gioberti's main contribution is the book Of the Moral and Civil Primacy of the Italians. It was a chauvinist diatribe on the inherent qualities of Italians and of the Roman Catholic Church. Gioberti argued that Italy was destined to take its place as a quote-unquote civilizing nation, just as the Romans had quote-unquote civilized the Gauls and Celts. It also called for a federal Italian state with the Pope as de facto president. This support given to the Pope to become the leader of Italy is where the term Neogolf comes from. It refers to a medieval Catholic political party that supported the Pope in his right for authority in appointing bishops in the Holy Roman Empire. The book entitled Primato 
sold an estimated 80,000 copies. Comparatively, Mazzini's best-selling work sold as few as 4,000 copies. The force of neo-Gulfism was clearly a very powerful one. It was an attractive alternative to many conservative Catholic leaders who wished to progress society using laissez-faire tactics while upholding the ancient regime and religion. The next wave of liberal thinkers would approach the question of Italy with a Piedmont tilt. The first was Cesar Balbo. His book, Of the Hopes of Italy, criticized the neo-Gulf movement and its chauvinist connotations, while supporting Catholicism and Piedmont. He also advocated for the removal of Austrians from Italy, a very dangerous idea for the time. However, the book was widely praised for its emphasis on foreign policy and its focus on the balance of power in Europe during the early 1840s. The second of these writers is our old friend Massimo Diazeglio, who wrote of recent events in the Romagna in 1846. It was a book focused mainly on the papal state's reactionary and miserable government, as well as their woeful mismanagement of their central Italian provinces. The book was highly critical of Pope Gregory's iron grip on policymaking. Diazeglio was also from Piedmont. Strange that both he and Balbo's books were banned in Charles Albert's domain for several years. They only enjoyed publication in Tuscany, where the Grand Duke was lax about censorship. Throughout the mid-1830s and up until the springtime of peoples in 1848, censorship became more and more lax throughout the Italian peninsula. This fact led to the flourishing of pan-Italian national movements, especially in the Duchy of Tuscany. There, in the city of Florence, publishing and writing exploded, which in turn proliferated the language of Dante to a new Italian readership. And although the new audience was small, they were powerful and affluent. Moderate reformers attempted to improve the agricultural output of the Italian countryside as well. This period brought about the first cheese farms in Gorgonzola, as well as the first Chianti vineyards. Imagine a Sauvignon Blanc with a side of fava beans. Ew. In 1839, one of the most famous political journals from this period, Il Politecnico, was founded by Carlo Catanillo, who will play a major part in the story to come. Catanillo gave another voice to the left of Italy. He was a Republican, but he believed Italy could be more effectively run as a federal system in which every region had local autonomy and its own government. A United States of Italy. With these new ideas spreading and liberalism encroaching, Charles Albert finally folded. He gradually allowed the formation of several gentlemen clubs of science, literature, and agriculture. However, it wasn't until 1847 when he allowed a truly Italian political newspaper. This paper was called Risorgimento, and it would not be possible without the help of Camillo Benzo, or as he was most well known, the Count of Cavour. This period between the late 1830s and the early 1840s brought about a national surge of Italian culture, language, and philosophy. However, it's important to understand that the majority of political and cultural figures during this period were North Italian, usually hailing from Piedmont. In fact, Gioberti, Balbo, Diazeglio, and Cavour would all eventually hold the title of Prime Minister in Piedmont. Mazzini and Garibaldi were both from Piedmont as well. 
The representation of Southern Italian and Sicilian thinkers was extraordinarily lacking. Perhaps it was due to the backward and repressive tactics used by the Bourbon state, or Italy's own internal prejudices. The South, even to this day, is behind the North in almost all respects save crime rate and illiteracy. This is partly due to the geopolitical climate throughout history, as are most divisions in countries like Italy. The South of Italy never became a part of the Holy Roman Empire, and it was always considered to be on the outskirts of quote-unquote civilized Europe, with most Italians north of Rome falling under the HRE's sway. A string of cohesive states formed within the north of Italy that was not solely subservient to the papacy. In addition, the immense wealth enjoyed by Venice, Genoa, and other merchant republics allowed northern Italy to remain an important trade hub, importing culture and ideas from across the Eurasian world. This divide between north and south was apparent to all, and the subjugation of the south of Italy by their northern siblings is still a sore spot for many Italians. Back in South America, after seeing initial success with the Republic of Rio Grande and the Republic of Giulia, Giuseppe and Anita Garibaldi were fighting against the Brazilian Empire, but they were slowly being subdued. The Ragamuffin army was significantly smaller than that of their opponents, and they possessed far less equipment and supplies. Their fight for the abolition of slavery and the survival of the Republic was over. The Garibaldis escaped at the front of a pack of ox, which Giuseppe Garibaldi intended to sell to pay for the basic needs of his wife and his new child, Dominic Menotti, who was named after the 1830 Modernese revolutionary. The child miraculously survived the trek through the rainforest and several large rivers, despite being a newborn in the cold in the dead of winter. The small Garibaldi family found its way to Montevideo in the newly proclaimed Uruguayan Republic. Garibaldi offered his services to the Republican Colorado Party in their war for the soul of their nation against the reactionary Blancos and their allies. It was here that Garibaldi met André Aguillar, a former enslaved person who took up arms against his enslavers. Aguillar would travel with Garibaldi at his side as aide-de-camp and lieutenant for the rest of his life. Garibaldi would also become inducted into the ranks of the Freemasons in 1844. It would go to shape his worldview. He would see it as an internationalist movement of like-minded liberals. In Uruguay, he took charge of the small local navy and raised the Italian Legion, a group of volunteer Italian Uruguayans, more well known by their nickname, the Red Shirts, after the tattered red undershirt they wore to battle. Garibaldi would remain in Montevideo, defending it until the first rumors of liberal revolt and reform in Italy reached the South American shore in 1846. Upon hearing this, he, his wife Anita, his now four children, and 60 armed men left for Italy. The second half of the 1840s were characterized by some of the worst food and economic crises to have devastated Europe in centuries. In 1845, the Great Irish Potato Famine began and devastated the global food supply, being that potatoes were usually a reliable crop. In 1846, wheat production was equally seriously lacking. 
the daily lives of the citizens of Europe worsened as they saw an immense increase in their cost of living. In no time at all, the cities of Europe saw bread riots and general disorder. This was especially true in Austria and Lombardy and the Papal States, where the food shortages of 1845 and 1846 brought Milan to a near standstill. Inflation led to economic stagnation, which led to increased unemployment. In Galicia, local Polish nobles started a bourgeoisie rebellion and attempted to stir the local population into action to fight against their new Austrian overlords for their ancient Polish rights. Instead, the Ukrainian people, who the Polish attempted to sway to their cause, were distrusting of landlords and felt more kindred with the emperor and Austria. They started death squads in the emperor's name, killing hundreds of Polish nobles, whose heads they would often send to Austrian officials as proof. They cared little for revolution. To them, one master was just as good as 100. This reactionary response to the first stirrings of revolt during this unprecedented time of disorder sent shockwaves to bourgeoisie leaders across Europe. Many Italian nobles who supported liberal reform even referred to the Austrians as, quote, communists, unquote who were willing to side with the peasant masses against nationalists and liberal uprisings in order to stay in power. This all changed with the news of the passing of Pope Gregory XVI in June of 1846. Within two weeks of his passing, the bishops and cardinals of Rome agreed to appoint the Bishop of Imola, a young 44-year-old man, to the position of pontiff. Born in Senegali on the Italian side of the Adriatic, Giovanni Ferretti would assume the title of Pius IX upon his ascension and bring everyday Italians in the grips of patriotic and religious fervor. Many Italians thought they had what Gioberti prophesied, a pope who would lead Italy toward a unity and reform through the majesty of Roman Catholicism. After seeing the riots and chaos which ensued over the past few months in Rome, Pius IX decided that the Christian thing to do was forgive and he proclaimed that his first act as pope would be to free a thousand political prisoners who were being held in the dungeons of the Papal States. He passed common-sense reform throughout the country and allowed a civil guard to be formed consisting of everyday Papal citizens. In reality, Pius was not as reformist as he seemed. He simply believed he was doing the right thing. This inexperience in government led to the floodgates being opened for Italian patriotism. The cry in every street of Italy, from Sicily to the Mincio Valley, was, Long live Pius IX. His seemingly progressive nature gave marginalized groups hope for the future of Italy. In no time at all, each Italian state was attempting to reform itself in order to meet the new lofty expectations of the quote, liberal, unquote, Pope. In Tuscany and Piedmont, the Duke and King passed a law to free the press. The two states also agreed to form an economic trade zone with the Papal States, one of the first post-Napoleonic expressions of pan-Italicism. The ascension of Pius and his initial reform had left the Austrians completely flat-footed. Metternich, now an old man, never foresaw such a turn of events. The position of Austria had to be improved by any means necessary. With this in mind, he made special alliances with Parma and Modena, and reinforced the garrison of Austrian troops in Ferrara, which was a part of the Papal States. Pope Pius, seeing this increase of foreign troops in his country, 
demanded that the Austrians withdraw. Metternich's bluff was called, and Austria, not wanting to risk the ire of the Catholic world, quickly withdrew to their own country. Italians lauded this as a show of the Pope's support for an independent Austrian-free Italy. To explain clearly the feeling of this time, I will quote at length the woman's rights activist and Italian revolutionary Simonetta Saldani. Quote, Te diems, torchlight processions, manifestations of joy for the reforms which had been obtained and pressure for those which were demanded, fly posters and discussions in the streets and cafes, the awareness that things were changing and that one's opinions and needs could now be expressed with less danger, the very climate of mobilization in which people lived amplified the purely political and liberal demonstrations and imposed them on public attention. This was not because most people understood the links between their own demands and those of others, but because they started to have the sense that they were not dealing with a monolith, an homogenous power block, a rigid situation in which it was inevitable to remain isolated in the end defeated, but that society was wider than one had realized on the basis of daily experience, and that one's vision and conception of the world was inadequate, and so were the aims and tools of one's struggle." Unquote. Charles Albert had always walked a tightrope. Whether it was in managing his many extramarital affairs, or in being the king of a small regional dependency which was hemmed in between two major world powers. The second half of the 1840s was a time of momentous change in Turin. When Charles Albert allowed D'Azeglio into his office for a meeting, he knew not what to expect. D'Azeglio had just returned from lobbying the many influential and like-minded liberal agitators across North and Central Italy. He wanted them to stop supporting isolated rebellions and Mazziniism and wait for the national movement, which was not to be led by the Pope or any other force in Italy, but by Piedmont. Charles Albert heard him out, and one can only imagine the thoughts racing through his mind. Was this the destiny that God had laid out for him? He said to Diazeglio, quote, Inform those gentlemen to remain quiet and not to move, as there is at present nothing to do. But let them be assured that when the occasion presents itself, my life, the life of my sons, my arms, my treasure, my army, all shall be expanded for the Italian cause. Unquote. Did Albert mean what he said, or was this shrewd politicking? Either way, the die was cast, and a simple military alliance with Austria would not stop him. On February 3, 1848, he called his Council of State to pass a constitution for the kingdom and its people, and on February 8th, the royal edict, consisting of 14 articles of the soon-to-be-ratified constitution, or statute, were read aloud to a clamoring crowd in Turin. This document is referred to as the Albertine Statute, and would be the law of the land through unification and until 1943. In the two Sicilies, Ferdinand II continued his megalomaniacal regime of oppression, crushing dissenters with a massive armed police force, which monopolized the state's budget. Surveillance and mistrust were the established order, and for many years the population, Neapolitans and Sicilians especially, bore it with increasing fury. 
There were revolts in support of reform in Calabria, which required a massive military operation to disperse in 1844. The more Ferdinand cracked down on his citizens' rights, the more they found his rule illegitimate. He could not understand this. When finally the first uprising of 1848 exploded in Palermo, every social class united to expel the Bourbons from the city and demand a constitution protecting their rights. Sicilians began forming armed bands to defend themselves from the expected Bourbon or Austrian invasion. Ferdinand pleaded for help from Austria, but Metternich, who was watching the world he built for 30 years completely collapse around him, replied that no help could be sent. Ferdinand had no choice but to accept a constitution. This led to the aforementioned Piedmont Constitution, but it also allowed for the Tuscan and Papal States to create constitutions as well. In Austrian Italy, the situation in Milan and Venice was simmering and would soon come to a boil. The Austrians had recently passed a tax on tobacco. This tax, at a time of unprecedented inflation and unemployment, was bitterly unpopular. On January 1, 1848, the citizens of Milan created the Tobacco Party. They wanted to persuade Italians to stop smoking by boycotting cigarettes as a form of protesting the inflated tax. In response, Austrian soldiers would ostentatiously smoke at public events and harass everyday Italians in the hopes that they would buy their cigarettes. This confrontational approach led to violence. On January 3, 1848, groups of Austrian soldiers congregated in the city center after the conflict between them and the citizens of Milan reached ahead. Scuffles erupted between protesters and guards. This caused the Austrians to fire into the mob of people, killing five and wounding a further 60. This gave the revolutionaries their rallying cry. And after hearing the news that France had proclaimed itself as a republic, the public opinion was only further inflamed. The city's marshal, Joseph Radetzky, called the troops to barracks for five days in the hopes of calming the mood of the population. In the ensuing days, the people of Milan hung papal and Piedmont flags in support of secession and Austrian removal. Such a tinderbox was the city that martial law was declared and curfews were put into place. Tensions would only increase as news from across Europe funneled into the city. In Vienna, the people had risen up and kicked out the royal government. Metternich fled to Great Britain. Upon hearing of the revolution, Emperor Ferdinand I is supposed to have asked Metternich if the revolutionaries were, quote, allowed to do that, unquote. Prince Felix had to convince the emperor of the need for abdication in favor of his nephew, Franz Joseph but that would not occur until December of 1848. In Ferdinand's diary, he is said to have written of the event, quote, The affair ended with the new emperor kneeling before his old emperor and lord, that is to say, me, and asking my blessing, which I gave him. Then I embraced him and kissed our new master. Afterwards, I and my wife heard holy mass. After that, I and my dear wife packed our bags, unquote. Ferdinand endured a tragic existence. His counselors, who would regale him as Ferdinand the Good in court, often spoke ill of him behind his back, calling him the finished or the benign. To many, the finished seemed to be an apt name for the entire Austrian Habsburg Empire. 
there were full-on revolutions in Vienna, Budapest, Prague, and especially North Italy. Austria was forced to move its imperial capital to Innsbruck, a mountain stronghold of a city with a royalist population. They would try their best to counteract the onslaught of news and disturbances from Milan to Budapest and Prague to Trieste. In Milan, the situation was beyond dire for Austria, as is related in the book The Dawn of Italian Independence. Quote, In 1848, Milan had 160,000 inhabitants. The Austrian garrison numbered 15,000 troops. The police and gendarmes, 900. The city had not yet been modernized. Its streets, except for a few avenues, leading to the gates, were narrow and irregular, often mere alleys in which two carts could not pass abreast. The dwellings built of stone, with lower windows heavily barred, could easily withstand an ordinary assault, and their spacious courtyards afforded shelter to a goodly squad of defenders. The city lay like a near circular shield on the Lombard plain, the spire of the cathedral glistening boss-like in its center, unquote. Milan's layout would have made it an absolute nightmare to defend from its own people, and Radetzky knew this. The cathedral, which sat at the highest point in Milan, could not be occupied by artillery, and the soldiers' barracks were located outside of the city itself. This made it even harder to reinforce isolated squads. To make matters worse, about one-third of the troops under Radetzky's command were Italian. When the time came, would they seriously be expected to follow orders to shoot their friends, family, and neighbors? On the morning of March 18th, more news from Vienna spread to the already agitated populace, and the order was given for soldiers to remain inside for the day, as proclamations of the new Viennese Republic were read aloud in the streets. Close to the cathedral, a 17-year-old cadet corporal recounts his experience of that consequential day. Quote, The night had passed without special incident, and the morning began quietly, although 18 March had been designated as the start of the revolt. However, as soon as the hour came when the shops used to open, people came running past the post and put posters with big letters on the street corners. Huge crowds collected around every single poster. Suddenly, the crowd was running around chaotically and with a great noise. Doors and windows were slammed shut. I had to expect the revolutionary spirit to explode at any minute, and I admit that the burden of the responsibility resting on my shoulders nearly overwhelmed me. However, I was relieved of my dangerous post by an old corporal of my company. He did not foresee that he had but a few hours to live. Unquote. In no time at all, a relatively peaceful congregation grew incredibly agitated and began to march on the mayor's palace. The mayor of Milan, Cassati, saw very quickly that he had to either join the rebellion or be considered a traitor by the mob. He chose the former to save his own skin. He was carried on the shoulder of armed, cheering protesters who marched toward the governor's palace with the Italian tricolor waving in the breeze. A small detachment of twelve Austrian soldiers attempted to hold back the crowd, and in the ensuing fight, ten of the twelve Austrians would be killed. At the governor's palace, an angry group of armed Republicans made their demands. They forced Governor O'Donnell to agree to the formation of a Lombard National Guard, 
and to abolish the Austrian police force, which would from now on be supplanted with native Italians. O'Donnell signed the document out of fear, even though he had no authority to grant the crowd's wishes. O'Donnell was then made a hostage of the revolutionaries, and as they marched back to City Hall, an Austrian patrol opened fire on them, which started a stampede. This forced Mayor Cassati to regroup and take up headquarters at a local residence. Already, barricades began to appear around the city in strategic locations, as the Austrian garrison was ordered to be in ready position in the hopes of ending the revolt before it began. The rain began to fall, as Rudetsky ordered the retaking of City Hall from the rebel mobs. The attack that followed was one of savage, close-up fighting. The rebels were often armed with whatever weapons were on hand. This included clubs, knives, and even tiles from the ancient city's walkways. In fact, of all the defenders inside City Hall, only about 60 were armed with firearms. The leader was a 70-year-old local who kept up the fight for some four hours until they were forced to surrender along with 300 other insurgents. The Austrians hoped this brought about a swift end to the rebellion, but Cassati, as well as the other Republican leaders, were not among the captured or dead. As the rain began to fall even harder, the first of the five days of Milan was over, and the citizens and soldiers returned to their beds for what was to be an eventful second day. Sunday, March 19th, was a bright and shining day. The citizens of Milan rang church bells throughout the day in the hopes of disrupting Austrian communications between isolated groups. This accompanied the cacophony of small arms fire. At 5 a.m., the order was given to occupy the roofs and scaffolds of the central cathedral, where Austrian Jaegers would be able to fire down on the rebels. This had devastating effects. As the day proceeded, more barricades were built, and the structures which were already built expanded significantly. This was a huge hindrance to Austrian troops. By the end of the fight, some 1,200 barricades would be erected. Accompanying these barricades were endless streams of pro-revolutionary graffiti, the most popular slogan being Pio IX, a reference to Pope Pius IX, and his supposed liberal persuasions. The fighting was savage. The bloody and unyielding combat that ensued lasted for hours. Austrians and Italians were falling every hour. In the Northeast, fighting was especially heavy around the seminary and the mint. In the following quote, Count Luigi Torelli relates a story of a noted Italian marksman who died in combat. Quote, the defenders there were not many, being in total some 15 ill-armed men. Indeed, some defenders brought with them old shotguns. The fighting, however, had reached a lull. It was rumored that the cause was an infamous marksman, who armed with an excellent Swiss carbine, went to the Cereboli house in order to harass the troops with his carbine. So this brave marksman, named Brogi, took position in the house and began to fire against the Austrian troops. They advanced, and two of their guns appeared shortly afterwards. This new fighting had a sad outcome because poor Brogi died. The struggle lasted a whole hour, and then the firing ceased. A young man arrived. He had in his hands a carbine, spotted with blood. What's happened? I asked. He replied, poor Brogi died. A ricocheting cannonball struck him, cutting him in two. Our grief was great, since Brogi was a fine marksman, while our soldiers were only brave men. Unquote. 
Meanwhile, Carlo Catanillo found his way into a position of leadership within the revolts, helping to politically organize the revolution. Radetzky saw the uselessness in trying to defend the city center and ordered a cordon be placed around it during the night. Though this was done solely to secure Radetzky's defensive perimeter, the population of Milan saw this as a clear sign that the tides were turning. March 20th was a murky, rainy day, and it would remain that way for its entirety. The leadership of the rebellion was now firmly in the hands of Catanillo. He quickly called for a council of war to be formed, consisting of himself and three other notables in the city. Their first act was to debate an offer of ceasefire from an Austrian Oberlieutenant. In the end, they rejected it. The fighting still raged, now with the Milanese as the aggressors. They fought through the still-occupied parts of the city. A particularly nasty engagement ensued near the police headquarters, where, after a last stand, the police chief surrendered. He was blamed for the deaths of January 3rd and was generally despised. His life was forfeit until Catanillo stepped in and said, quote, Should you kill him, you would do a just thing. Should you not kill him, you would do a holy thing. Unquote. The police captain's life was spared. He was instead made a prisoner of the citizens. The rebels were making significant headway this day, but the Milanese population was beginning to feel the food shortage. March 21st was by far the most significant of the days, as it saw the arrival of Count Martini, a noble from Turin at the behest of King Charles Albert. The Count had brought an offer of support from the Piedmont Royal Army should the Milanese people require it. Previously, the conflict had remained a city-wide dispute, but now everything had changed. With Charles Albert's decision to support the revolutionaries, he would cast himself as Italy's savior from foreign domination and attempt to unite the peninsula against a single threat. This news greatly heartened the people of Milan, who were still fighting on the barricades. A definitively terrible fight began at the engineers' barracks north of the cathedral. The Milanese and Austrians fought to the death for control of the building. It wasn't until a disabled beggar managed to set fire to the doors of the barracks with turpentine that the Milanese were able to storm it. The people of Milan captured the company's commander and dozens more. Likewise, the struggle for the gatehouses continued in the north and east. Each hour, the insurgents gained more and more ground. Finally, as Radetzky was reeling, he asked for another ceasefire, which was rejected immediately. Upon hearing the news, the crowds of Milan chanted, War! War! This day also confirmed the news of other rebellions throughout Austrian Italy. The night settled on the fighting for the city's gatehouses. When the sun rose on March 22nd, the people of Milan had been 48 hours without food and had had very little water. A gatehouse had to be forced somewhere in the city, or the rebellion would wither on the vine. The problem with attacking these gatehouses was that it left one incredibly exposed to defilade fire. It took a professor by the name of Antonio Carnevali to come up with the solution. To quote the book Radetzky Marches, the campaigns of 1848 to 1849 in Upper Italy, the former instructor of the Pavia Military Academy had developed what became known as mobile barricades, based around fascines lashed together to form cylinders. These would prove crucial, unquote. Outside the city, 
revolutionary bands had formed and attempted to penetrate the northernmost gate. The gate that proved to be the deciding factor was the Tosa Gate, where the mobile barricades made their most impactful contribution. They accomplished this with the aid of two small cannon and five of these mobile barricades, which were pushed up. During the attack led by Luciano Monara, a young officer, the gate was eventually taken. The first gate to the city of Milan had fallen. The people could finally eat. To compound on this, the Comasina gate fell shortly afterward. Radetzky was now in serious trouble. He was surrounded in the front and rear by rebels and could not fall back. He had to retake the lost gatehouses and stabilize his tenuous position. His attack succeeded, but it was difficult and came at a great cost to his troops. After this, a council of war was called. Radetzky knew Piedmont would join, and at that point, it would only be a matter of time before the city was liberated. It was with this consideration that Radetzky ordered a retreat in the night. His report states, quote, This is the most terrible decision of my life, but I can no longer hold Milan. All the country is in revolt. I am threatened from the rear by the Piedmontese. They can cut all the bridges at my back, and I have no beams to repair them. Nor have I sufficient means of transport. I do not know anything about what is happening behind the army. Unquote. He could guess, but the fog of war which is created through revolution is so uncertain that even obtaining a headcount of men who were available to fight required a good deal of guesswork. At 9 p.m., the retreat began. Five columns poured out of the city as Austrians bombarded the Milanese in order to distract the citizens from their movement. This ruse worked because serious fighting was only occurring in one place, a railway station that had to be stormed by Austrian grenadiers in order for their troops to pass safely. Luigi Torelli relates the spectacle of the last day. Quote, One of the last houses of the main street was on fire. The fire lit up the bastion and the street around Porta Tosa. The guns were firing at random all along the main street. The bells were pealing. It was a great last act of the drama of the five days. In this last hour of the fifth day, we lost a victim, a man, not very young, advancing beyond the barricade, was struck in the head and died. Unquote. The losses on either side were difficult to calculate. While it is generally agreed upon that Italians lost 400 plus civilians, 600 more were wounded and about 300 were taken prisoner. 181 Austrian soldiers were killed, 235 were wounded, and about 150 of them were captured. As Rudetsky marched away toward Lodi, he must have wondered about the rest of the empire he spent nearly 60 years serving. He must have thought of Venice. In Venice there was a revolt, but it was much less bloody than the revolt in Milan. Owing to the work of two men, Daniel Manin and Niccolo Tomaseo. Manin was a liberal lawyer, while Tomaseo was an ardent Republican from Dalmatia. Together, they formed a thorn in the side of imperial authorities for years. They would often find loopholes and ways of following the law while simultaneously demanding reform, and this infuriated authorities. On January 8, 1848, the two presented a petition demanding a return to their old rights and privileges Venetians had enjoyed before Austrian rule. 
This was too much for the authorities, and the two men were thrown in jail. When a court ordered their release, the police captain simply refused to do so and kept them interned. This act further enraged Venetians, who sought redress from their Hungarian mayor. He had little to give the crowd in the way of promises. Meanwhile, the imperial garrison, composed of only 7,000 soldiers, pleaded for more men to deal with the impending social unrest, and the Austrian navy, which was composed almost solely of native Italians, had to have a serious talk about the direction in which it would swing. With the news of the uprising in Vienna came the true beginnings of agitation. The citizens rapidly spread the word throughout the streets and waterways. Massive crowds began congregating around the mayor's palace, calling for freedom for Manin and Tomaseo. The mayor pleaded with the crowd, reminding them that he had no authority to release prisoners of the state. The prisoner's 16-year-old son, Giorgio Manin, had no patience left for the mayor and marched a group of armed men to the prison where his father was being held. Matters only escalated from there. Sensing the impending violent reactions of the crowd, the military governor pleaded with Manin to leave the prison with his son. Manin refused and said he would only leave when he was officially released. The governor acquiesced and officially released Manin and Tamaseo, who were carried out of the prison on the shoulders of the cheering crowd. Manin was now in control of the city. The crowds of Venice would kill for him if he asked, but that was not Manin's way. Instead, he returned home and concocted a way to complete the revolution with as little bloodshed as possible. In St. Mark's Square, scuffles erupted between soldiers and the leaderless Venetians, leading to several injuries and one person's death. In response to this violence, Manin demanded a civic guard be started with men from Venice serving in its ranks. On March 18th, another such confrontation erupted in St. Mark's, this time much more violently. Five people were killed and many more were wounded when Austrian troops opened fire on a crowd of civilians. Venice was looking more and more like Milan. Manin knew he had to act quickly to prevent further bloodshed. The civic guard was finally allowed to patrol the streets and they did more than either side in assuaging the violence. These guardsmen also began openly fraternizing with the Italians in the garrison. After several days of relative peace, Manin decided on the evening of March 21st to take full control of the city. The most strategic military points in the city were the aforementioned St. Mark's Square and the Arsenal, a huge naval shipyard. The revolution was planned for the next day. As March 22nd began, the rebels set their sights on the Arsenal. The superintendent, an extremely hated man, was told not to show up to work that day by the Italian admiral, lest there be violence against him. The superintendent arrived anyway, and after he surrendered to the crowd, was murdered. Manin now had an excuse. He arrived at the arsenal with 100 armed civic guardsmen. After storming the admiral's office, he demanded a tour of the facility. During Manin's tour, an Italian-Austrian infantry battalion was ordered to open fire on Venetian civic guardsmen who were blocking their way. Instead, the men wounded and captured their own Austrian officer. This also happened with another Italian-Austrian unit. Upon his return, Manin ordered weapons be distributed to the citizens. At St. Mark's, a group of 300 armed men approached a grenadier company, which was holding the square. In a lucky turn, these soldiers turned out to be Italian as well, 
and they also defected to the side of the rebels. Manin soon arrived at the square, tricolor flag unfurled and sword in hand. He declared the beginning of the Republic of Venice and called for Italian unity and fraternity. Manin had carried out a nearly bloodless revolution and was rewarded with control of an entire navy to boot. As there were 5,000 Italian soldiers and officers in the Austrian navy and only 700 chose to remain loyal to the Imperials. On March 23rd, the pages of the Risorgimento were illuminated by the Count of Cavour's words. Quote, The dynasty's finest hour has arrived. There are circumstances when it is audacious to be prudent and when it is wiser to be bold than calculating. Unquote. The meaning was clear. Piedmont must fulfill their oath and ride to the defense of their Italian brothers. The next day, March 24th, Piedmont declared war on Austria. The cry in the streets of Turin was, quote, What care we for allies? Italy will act by herself. Unquote. As the first detachments of the Piedmont army crossed into Lombardy, bound for Milan, the question of Charles Albert's motives for supporting the rebellion must be posed. If this were a cynical power grab, he would be risking everything, his crown, his name, and his country, for a state that hadn't existed for 1,500 years. Not many people would risk everything for something that the majority of humanity considered a pipe dream. Meanwhile, Radetzky and his army were in full retreat. Their objective was to concentrate in Verona, which was the northeastern tip of a defensive perimeter composed of multiple cities, Pesiera, Mantua, Legnano, and Verona, which comprised this perimeter, was also referred to as the quadrilateral. Radetzky's hope was to use the naturally defensible terrain in this area to defeat the upstart rebels. In his first address to his soldiers after the retreat from Milan, Radetzky stated, quote, For reasons of higher strategy, I as a general have given way, not you. You are undefeated. You yourselves know this, that at all points where you appeared, you were victorious. Soldiers, trust in me as I trust in you. Soon I will again lead you forward to take revenge for the betrayal and treachery which was committed against you. Unquote. The idea was good in theory. After all, this was the same place in which Napoleon crushed the Austrians on the Rivoli Plateau and won battle after battle, which awed the world. Rudetsky, however, would face the combined might of Italy. Not only would the forces of the republics of Lombardy and Venice be attacking his army, but also the forces of Piedmont and volunteers from the Italian peninsula and the world over. But that will have to wait for the next episode of Turning Tides, in which I will detail Radetzky's army colliding head-on with the forces of the Risorgimento in a titanic struggle which history remembers as the First Italian War of Independence. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.